okay, there's this process of revealing all of the sort of uh, systemic, problematic aspects of modernity. And we reveal them and then we kind of deconstruct them as we ought to. Then there's this subsequent move where we then reconstruct, we rebuild, we find a new sort mm. of narrative, a new way of being that can help us move forward together as human beings. And part of what constellates that narrative for me is this possibility of collapse. Welcome to A State of Mind. This is Julian Ocean. You guys just heard a clip from my conversation and episode from today with Mr. Daniel Thorson. And he is currently living at a place called the Monastic Academy. I'll provide a link on the show webpage. And it is a really interesting, innovative approach to contemporary spirituality, incorporating aspects of traditional Buddhism and other spiritual modalities like he talks about, but in a very new way. And it's an attempt to create a space for people to transform and improve their lives. And Daniel's had a really interesting life. He shares with us some of his activism living at Zuccotti Park for the Occupy Wall Street movement, as well as his discovery of meditation and some of his journey with that and the work that he's doing in the world today, partly with his own podcast, which is called Emerge, which I highly recommend. So I hope you enjoy. And without further ado, I bring you Daniel Thorson. Hello, I'm here with uh, Daniel Thorson. Daniel, thanks for being on. Oh yeah, total pleasure. And you're someone that I met in Boulder several years ago, I think. And then we connected, honestly, I think it was about exactly a year ago. And we walked around Boulder Creek and you told me about your podcast, um, which is called Emergence, is that right? It's called Emerge, yeah. Emerge, Emerge. okay. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, you shared with me about that and that was inspiring and helped me get started on this podcast project. So I appreciated that. Yeah, totally. It's really cool to see this happen and the kind of... uh, the, 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 that walk bearing fruits in my reality, you know, a year later. It's, it's fun. Yeah, totally. And um, I guess, so you're, I'm talking with you now and you're at a monastery. Is that right? Called- well, yeah, I'm at a place called the Monastic Academy, which, okay. you know, uh, it depends on who you ask and what the definition of the monastery is, whether or not we really are a monastery. But right. we, we typically will say it's kind of like, a training center inspired by the monastic tradition. Okay. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not like wearing robes and we don't take like a vow of celibacy. And some people think of that as the kind of like, if you don't do that, you're not a monastic. And we just kind of don't want to deal with that debate. So we just say it's a monastic training center typically. Yeah. That's really interesting to hear about. Cause I was, I was going to ask you about this cause that, yeah, that word monastery can mean different things. And mm-hmm. I think I like this, I like this, place like the intentions that I understand it so far of where, where you're at, that it's a place of people to come and train their mind or practice things like meditation without a lot of baggage. I don't know. How would you talk about it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what did you mean by, by baggage in that, in I mean, that case? It just seems, it seems like it's a kind of a new thing. It's not, um, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem like it's rooted in like an particular ancient tradition with a lot of rules. Like you just, I mean, the thing about the, yeah, the word monastery is funny. Like I think celibacy would be the first thing that people think of. And and that's, and that's legitimate because that was, that's such a big vow that monks and nuns do take Mm -hmm. um, that differentiates them from other people. Yeah. But in our world today, there's a big movement to bring these kinds of meditation practices into our normal life, into our relationships and to not have to take like lifelong vows in order to do that. And that's right we could transform the world while being more engaged with it rather than totally removing ourselves from it, which would be a critique of a lot of kind of monastic situations in the past. Um, so I kind of see, I don't know, it's a complex picture and I see a lot of different sides of it, but I'm just curious to hear more about the, yeah. about what you guys are doing over there. And yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. So um, one way that I like to kind of, at least in, in the milieu that I imagine is listening to, to sort of present what the monastic academy is is that it's it's a kind of living inquiry into what is a monastery in our culture today right mm. and as you say like there are aspects of the form of a monastery that have existed throughout history that are, are like well worth preserving and learning from and then there are other aspects that don't really just feel as appropriate or as relevant to us now yeah. kind of figuring out which is which is is the is is a lot of work you know this place is seven years old now and and like it's a learning process. We're, 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 we're kind of figuring it out to some degree as we go along, but it is very much so kind of, I would say, post-traditional, right? We, we take from all the contemplative traditions of the world that the lead teacher here, Soryu Foral, is, is mostly inspired by Rinzai Zen. That's where he trained in Japan. But, you know, we've had retreats where we look at the Christian mystics. Um, one of the other uh, kind of inspirations for this monastery is somebody named Shinzen Young, who has done yeah. a lot of work for kind of like deconstructing and reintegrating the various contemplative technologies across particularly the Buddhist tradition, but really in a kind of non, uh, you know, beyond ideology or beyond particular buckets of practice and tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all of that, and we also have like, you know, like we have Lakota practices, like we have somebody come and lead us on a vision quest in the summer. We do oh, well. a practice called circling uh, every week. We have forms of, pure coaching and uh, you know, so there's, a, there's a, and, and we do trauma healing. Uh, so there's a kind of a really eclectic and interesting mix of technologies of transformation that we're ex- still experimenting with and finding out like, what is the right kind of recipe to create the type of human that needs to come online now in this time of planetary transition is really the guiding mm. thing in that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a powerful and positive intention mm-hmm. and inquiry in it. Yeah. It's, a, it's such a complex subject for me since I have a, I have a master's in Buddhist studies. So I've studied the history and all these different traditions and I do have respect for them. And it's just this huge question of how do these things, like, are we just preserving certain traditions for the sake of preserving them? I mean, that's not quite enough. I mean, there's always been change. There's always been transformation. The world is changing so much. You know, but I do, I do have value and respect for people who are preserving these ancient traditions. Mm-hmm. And then there's just this huge area of people like you and like this institution that are trying to look at the whole world in a more holistic way and integrative way and, and make these changes. And then there's like a lot of dangers there of getting, I don't know, it could be all the, all the negative stereotypes of like new aginess, right? Totally. Or, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, doing that well is 
very, very difficult. And I think that people get it wrong, like in the case of the New Age movement or some parts of the New Age movement, to the degree that they don't take that challenge seriously, where they're kind of like facile about it. And they're like, oh, like, yeah, they're all, all the traditions are saying like, we're ultimately one with everything. So like, let's just go with that. You know, it's like, no, actually, there's like a lot of, there's thousands of years of sophistication here. And like, we actually need to take it quite seriously and assume that they're talking about something legitimate and like really be in dialogue with it and not just try to, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I have a soft spot for like new, some of the new age stuff. Like, I don't want to totally diminish it because I think like that can be a trap too. Like you can, like calling something new age can just be like an insult or like just a way to dismiss what someone else is doing. So that's not always a fair thing, but Mm -hmm it is good to be intelligent and critical and respectful. And I think like, like you mentioned, like um, doing like a vision quest, like that kind of engaging with more indigenous spiritual practices have been so powerful and transformative for a lot of people. And it's also a very sensitive area, like issues of like cultural appropriation or Mm. this, you know, dominant culture that we're in now um, taking on these other spiritual forms could just be a way of like trying to like make yourself feel comfortable or calm or relaxed without really changing the way you're living your life without really looking at some of the trauma and tragedy in our history and in our environment and all the rest. I mean, I know this is all stuff you've thought a lot about, so that's why I'm just bringing it up. Yeah. I I mean, I agree completely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's an ongoing, I mean, it's an ongoing inquiry for me. Like, is this stuff actually helpful given the situation we're in collectively? Um, Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I go back and forth. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think it is helpful. I think it's all, it all can be good if it's done in the right way. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I agree, but it's very easy for it to tip over to, into something. I, I well, I guess I, I keep the inquiry open because I think it keeps me honest, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I think, yes, this stuff is good, then I think I get too comfortable and I don't interrogate what it is that I'm doing with my life such that I can be sure that what I'm doing is worth my time hmm. given what I know about the world. And so I, I, I just don't want to be like too easy about it. Like, yes, this stuff is good. And I, I mean, obviously I think this stuff is good. I'm like here in a monastery, I'm like inviting people to come here. I've dedicated my life to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess one the one thought I want to share is well in the Zen tradition in Japan there was and it was partly political I think there was like an edict from the emperor or something that that Buddhist monks couldn't be celibate and it was partly to take away the the power of the Zen monasteries and and Buddhist monasteries there but I think that um, having like a way to honor someone as a spiritual practitioner as a meditator without the vow of celibacy but still honoring them like that there could be like different different styles of practice that are all legitimate and we can appreciate them. Mm-hmm. And then the, I mean, in the Buddhist tradition, being a monk or a nun and taking these vows is like very respected in those cultures. And our culture doesn't really respect those forms in the way they did in the past. Absolutely. Maybe, maybe some people do, but in general, oh, yeah, not, but, yeah. but some way to distinguish yourself from just being like an ordinary, regular Joe Schmo. Like, cause if you're taking on these disciplines, that's time and energy and effort and, hopefully it's making you a better person and hopefully you're doing better things in the world because of that. Mm-hmm. So some way to like honor that and name that feels important to me. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah. It, yeah, that's, and that's part of the struggle that um, this organization has faced is that there, as you say, there's such a, a deep culture mm-hmm. of like recognition of the 
significance of the monastic lifestyle in a lot of these like East Asian cultures, right? And hmm. here in America, that isn't present. And so it's like, <clears throat> not really like there's, yeah, there's just not that relationship. And so it's a question like, um, what story art do we tell about the significance of this place that actually can kind of, we with our Western consciousness, with our contemporary minds, uh, can kind of make sense out of it and value it appropriately. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a work in progress. You know? it's, still, it's still happening. Yeah. yeah. I remember I had a teacher um, who taught at the school I went to in Europa mm-hmm. and he was from, he was born on the border of Nepal and Tibet. And he said that when he first came to here to America, he wore his robes out like mm-hmm. on a Saturday night and he was like walking around with friends or something and he was dressed in the traditional Buddhist robes and um, someone came up and was like angry with him and was like even like yelled at him or something and wow. was like against religion and against like this religious people and blah, blah, blah. And, and then he stopped wearing robes and he just dresses normally now. Um, mm-hmm. But I can kind of like, it's just an interesting story and I can kind of sympathize with some of those sentiments of like, people like Sam Harris do such a great job of criticizing religion and they make a lot of great points. And there was a lot of corruption is a lot of corruption in a lot of these institutions and just wearing robes doesn't necessarily mean anything. Yep, um, it should mean right. something, but doesn't always. Yeah. So yeah. it's just a, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why I think to a large degree, we've emphasized this place as a kind of center for self transformation and, and de-emphasized uh, any of the kind of religious overtones. Like there's lots of people here practicing from different religious backgrounds, no religious background, wh- whatever, mm. but they're coming here in order to transform their minds and their lives. And, and that really is more kind of the narrative and, and right. Like even Sam Harris, right. At the same time, he's very critical of religions. He has a meditation app. Yeah. He's a, he's a great mind. meditation teacher. <laughs> yeah. He's a meditation teacher. So it's, yeah, there's a kind of currency or, or there's a, there's a way that narrative is shaping up that I very much feel like this place is kind of, a part of and wanting to be in integrity with. Awesome. Yeah. That's exciting to hear about. I guess while we're on the subject, what do you think about the question of celibacy and calling yourself, I don't know if you, do you call yourselves monks there or is that not part of the terminology? No, you don't use that. No, not typically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't have strong feelings about it. Yeah. I, I, I I mean, no, I don't have strong feelings about it. I'd I'd be interested if it were like, if, 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 if it were a decision that we were making, like to be celibate, I'd be curious about it. I'd think about it more, but because we're not celibate, it's not really like functioning very much in my world. That's it. So when I, when I saw the website and like monastic Academy, that's one of the things that came to mind. I'm like, Oh, are they, I was imagining you guys were celibate when you're there, but I guess not. So <laughs> that answers that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we do have rules about like who you can be in relationship with and things like that. Like you can't be in relationship with other people who are in the community, like training. Oh. Uh, and so most people are not in relationship. Most people are functionally celibate while mm. here. There is not. A, a, so let's see. Yeah. I see. Okay. Interesting. Um, and then how do you like, I don't know, I'm curious about your life, how you got to be there. Like what was your journey like to, to be living there? Well, so I, I, yeah, I lived here for two years, uh, about three years ago. So this is my second tour of duty at the monastery. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And there are a number of people for who leave and come back. And so I left for two years, but, um, yeah. Do you, do you want to, how, how full of a story well, do you want? Yeah. I'm curious, like how you got interested in meditation, for example, often people uh, come to it through different ways. Like one way that I've heard a lot of people describe is through an experience with psychedelics uh-huh, and showing uh-huh. them the potential of their consciousness and like just having such a novel new experience of possibilities they never even considered. 
and then leads them to something like a meditation practice. Um, and then the other way that I've commonly heard is some kind of tragedy or trauma in their life mm. leads them to a path of healing and potentially meditation. Mm. So, yeah. So I had, I had, the, I had those two and then a third. So I okay. had um, my, I had a long-term relationship that ended and it just sent me into a state of real like sadness and depression and yeah, mm. confusion. Um, I all, then had a, a I, I had my first experience with mushrooms. And then around the same time, I think before this, I saw the f- some of the first fMRI studies of the brains of meditators. And at the time, I was a very like materialist kind of uh, academic, ap- academically minded person. And so that kind mm. of pierced that ideology that I was holding enough that I could sort of entertain the possibility that this might actually not just be like nonsense. Right. That's a good, that's a good third way is, is through some of the science that's coming out and psychology and a lot of the benefits are being shown. It's kind of like exercise for people now. Yeah. And so those three things I think were enough to like, uh, get, <laughs> get, like convince my stubbornness to, to do something like that. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I just had someone on here who did a, a three retreat, Eric Solomon, hmm. and he's been, he has like 40 years of meditation practice. And we were talking about some of the scientific studies and reducing stress and like blood pressure. And I, I joked with him like, well, no one does a three-year retreat to reduce your blood pressure. And it was the biggest laugh I got out of him. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you're right. Yeah. And so he's, he said that people are, are mistaking some of these, what he calls fringe benefits as the oh. reason to meditate. Oh and, my God. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, I talked with somebody recently who talked about a, a kind of what, 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 what's being developed is a kind of like mindfulness funnel right? Where you have people encountering studies about mindfulness, like, oh, it's good for you, whatever. Maybe they download Headspace, they start using that. And then they, mm. maybe after a couple of years of that, they go on a three-day retreat at IMS. And maybe then they do a 10-day Goenka course. And, you know, it, it just keeps kind of going like that. And so maybe these are sort of like initial invitations into the practice. But yeah, I don't yeah. think anybody really who does it, I mean, three three year retreat let alone like even go on a retreat does it really to lower their blood pressure right yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of like yeah. a side side benefit i guess yeah or, or just an indication of some kind of more holistic transformation right it's like it's like a leading indicator of something more profound and deep i think that is being uh worked on or transformed or opened up yeah yeah well cool uh, one thing I want to ask you about was your activism with you're in the Occupy Wall Street movement. I was. Yeah, yeah, I'd love yeah. to hear a little bit about that. How did you wind up there? And well, yeah, so I I wound up there because I was on a 20 day Goinka retreat in Canada, and just as I was coming off retreat, I saw the Brooklyn <clears throat> Bridge arrest, where which was where Occupy like really blew up in terms of public notoriety. And mm. I think just because I was coming out of the retreat, I had the kind of clarity of heart and intention. And I was just like, oh, I got to be there. I just went. Like, there's no question in my mind at the time. I'd never done anything oh. like that before. But And you live there? You just went and yeah, lived there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I lived there for eight months in New York City. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I slept on the park until we got evicted. I got, I got arrested. It was a wild, it was a wild time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, what, what came out of that? Because, I mean, I read about it in the news and I talked to some people who were involved, but it's kind of like all these... My cynical side of me is like these different protest movements. And then what do, what do we have to show for it afterwards? Like I got, I got arrested protesting the Iraq war a long time ago. Mm. And it was a really weird, bizarre experience where like there was this huge protest in San Francisco, tens of thousands of people filling the streets and I uh, went through the streets and it was, you know, fairly well organized. And then the official protest ended and a lot of people stayed. 
And then that was considered like an illegal gathering. And then we kept going through the streets and uh, there were a bunch of police people on the roofs, like with cameras and videos and there were masked anarchists with waving black flags. And like we were going as this group and then um, Mm. we turned a corner and all of a sudden we were on uh, like a sidewalk. All of a sudden there was this huge wall of police people and they just came in, Mm. made everyone into little boxes and then threw everyone in vans and just cleared the street and like, 30 minutes. It was amazing. Never seen anything like it. This coordinated police action that oh, it's took yeah. 2,000 people off the street or something. And then later all the charges were dismissed because it wasn't, yeah, there was no due process, yeah, but it got, thing. it got rid of the protest, you know? Yeah. 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 Same, same exact <laughs> thing happened with, with me and Occupy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we, it was an incredible demonstration of yeah coordinated uh, kind of state action <laughs> towards the <laughs> towards the assembly uh and then yeah it got thrown out because of some some reason just because it's easier for them to throw it out than to try to deal with it right but it had the effect of clearing out the park but yeah they, totally yeah. yep 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 yeah absolutely um yeah i mean what, what so there's a way in which you can see that occupy failed right like it didn't fundamentally change the world like many of us who were there thought it was going to Hmm. Um, and perhaps that was sort of a narrative at the time, like, oh, we're going to like, just like go for the heart of the Death Star and like, I can, you know, transform the world right now. <laughs> like Star you know, Wars that, style. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was kind of the felt sense of being there for a lot of people. Um, but I think, you know, I take the perspective that Occupy was kind of like an eruption in the collective consciousness that is never going to go away. It's a kind of like feeling and an expression that mm. is just part of our world and it's finding its expression you know not just in occupy but now like in things like extinction rebellion and mm. in many of the people I talked to on my podcast who for whom like for me occupy was a kind of formative experience which uh, opened their eyes and minds to things that were really different than what they had thought about the world and and gave them a new picture of what was possible and sent their life in a radically different direction. You know, it's kind of like what's coming to mind is like, it's like uh, if you take psychedelics and you're like, ah, but like you came back and you're, you know, it didn't work. Right. Because all you had was a great experience and you know, maybe you're still an asshole. It's like, well, actually like though, that was really significant for the development of my consciousness and, there's a lot of seeds that were planted at right. Occupy that, you know, we don't even see them bearing fruit, but they are. It's almost yeah. like be more process oriented rather than outcome oriented. Like that's right. The yeah. individual changes, the communities that were built, all that. Yeah. 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 And even like something like Bernie Sanders or like the $15 minimum wage, there's a lot of ways in which you can oh, cool. directly associate that with the kind of consciousness raising of Occupy, I believe. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Um, and it's inspiring to hear about because it's like mm. such a radical statement and, um, I guess my, like, I just have this big question that's been alive in me for a long time and I'm going to try to put it into words. Like, do you know the work of Steven Pinker? He came out with the book Enlightenment Now. And he's someone who's very, he's pointing out all the, these amazing ways we've progressed as a civilization, as a society, how much mm-hmm. better, objectively speaking, our lives are today than they were a hundred years ago, 50 years ago, let alone 500 or a thousand years ago in terms of lifespan and education and nutrition and Mm-hmm. air conditioning and cell phones and like all these like this idea of progress and that we're we're moving in a good direction and it's like it's a really powerful thing to read 
And then oftentimes like that's contrasted with the sense of like impending doom and like things are getting worse. And even though our objective circumstances are more comfortable or safer or better in almost every conceivable way, our subjective experiences seem to be one of increasing anxiety, depression. Mm-hmm. Like people don't, aren't subjectively reporting themselves as being happier. Yeah. It doesn't seem like, like everyone's yeah. complaining all the time. Everyone, no matter how much money you have, you always want more. Like it's like the car I drive would be, would have been a miracle a hundred years ago. Yeah. And yet when I get in a, and drive to work, all I can think about is like, I'm not in a Land Rover <laughs> or like yeah, right. you, know, you see all the other cars around me that are bigger and whatever. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. just that kind of dynamic. So I, I don't know, like, I mean, and you're someone who's like, you had, you're talking about the idea of like society level collapse on your podcast. Yeah. Right. Like how do you, how do you see this whole picture? Like what kind of words do you want to share with us? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I know it's a big question, but I just see these two extremes. Like on the one hand, are we heading towards a utopia or are we heading towards this like dystopia? Or are we just going to continue along as we are kind of mildly unsatisfied and happy, generally speaking, and kind of stumbling forward? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, one thing to just be very clear about is that unless we can decouple economic growth from resource extraction, then the current economic system, which is a planetary economic system, is inevitably self-terminating, right? It's just like a, a economic system that's predicated on infinite growth cannot grow on a finite playing field, period, hmm. period. That's really important that everybody understands that. Uh, now, there's then the question like, well, how long do we have, right? Do we have 10,000 years of further resource extraction and like biospheric degeneration? Or do we have five years? Or do we have 100 years? Or do we have 10 years? And, you know, you can look into the research. It's hard to tell because, you know, we're doing things to complex systems that have complex relationships with other systems that then, you know, have very, it's just very complex, (laughs) right? It's very hard to quantify and track what's going on. Like you look at climate model systems and they have like a thousand different variables, each of which is very hard to measure and track, right? And so, like, we don't actually understand a lot of the things that we're interfering with right now. That's just mm. kind of how, what it's like. Uh, um, that last and, point seems clear. Like we yeah. don't really understand the effects of what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. And so we can track like obvious benefits and improvements, right? Like linear and even exponential improvements in the quality of life along certain measurements. But at the same time, we need to understand that we're depleting the kind of um, basis on which that improvement is happening mm. by virtue of the economic system, which is giving us those improvements. Uh, and so then once you get into this kind of sense of like, well, how long do we have? And you start looking at those questions more clearly, like even the IPCC report, right? Which is a pretty mainstream body or organization that's looking at different climate research. Um, mm, that's a climate group. Yeah, that's uh, the, I think, intergovernmental climate something or other. It's, it's put it together by the UN, okay. right? So it's like not a fringe group. It's like a very, you know, like, anyways, um, (laughs) uh, uh, they are saying you, we have, and this was published, I think a year ago, we have 12 years to make fundamental systemic changes in order to avoid catastrophe. So even what you would imagine to be relatively conservative assessments, given that they're being produced by the government's whose identity is based on the thing which is perhaps destroying the planet, are saying we have 12 years. Well, like, okay, like, so let's say we have 12 years. Like, that's a pretty small window 
And so, yeah, things might be getting better, but like things also need to dramatically and fundamentally shift in order for them to keep getting better and not get radically and, and very quickly worse. Yeah, no, that was well said. Um, the climate change is, I mean, that seems like such a huge thing and there's such a overwhelming scientific consensus and so much of our society is based around science and scientific advances and technology. The fact that our society can't agree that climate change is even a problem to address is, mm. is really disconcerting. It's really sad. Although that, that's changing very quickly, even over the last couple of years, there's many, many more people who understand that this is a very real issue. The, 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 the further problem is that like, that's just one of many different uh, kind of existential <laughs> risks that humanity is, in, is kind of facing down into the future, right? So like climate is just one variable in the various sort of uh, uh, biospheric threats and then there's also things like AI, and there's also things like genetic technology and exponential tech more generally, right? There's a, a whole lot of things that we just don't have the coordinative capacity to meet with the current sort of global planetary infrastructure. It's just, and climate change is a paradigmatic example because no country can solve climate change on its own, but no country can solve AI on its own either because of hmm. multipolar traps and like how game theory works like of course i'm going because i don't believe that you're not going to develop the super ai weapon so i'm going to do it first and i can't trust you because of game dynamics and like there's no way to solve yeah. these sorts of like arms risk totally yeah it's yeah. the same thing with nuclear weapons except now it's becoming uh yeah just much more dangerous with many more different kind of tools with which to wield that sort of godlike power yeah no i mean and i agree with a lot of that i guess i want to share like a counter argument please yeah in um it was 2004, 2005. I can't remember. I went to this presentation by this professor at the university I was going to, and it was very detailed and he had charts and graphs and it was all about peak oil. Mm. And he was saying that in four to five or six years, like we were going to reach peak oil, that demand was going to outstrip supply and that there was going to be this huge, all these collapse of economies and all this turmoil and all. none of that has happened. Like we're still running on oil. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we've reached this peak oil or not, but like we found more oil or we're getting more oil. So it's like, there's been so many moments in the environmental movement where it's kind of like the sky is falling and then it hasn't fallen. And then people are like, kind of, it's hard to, you know, are we hard to motivate people to make these huge changes in their lives if they're doubting whether or not this disaster is going to happen. So totally. Yeah. And I think part of the problem, <clears throat> one of the root problems of our current situation is the degree to which the information ecology has so broken down that people cannot make sense out of the world such that they can be confident about anything, especially right. like climate change. Right. Uh, and, and so our vested interests, and that's also part of the system itself. You know, these are all kind of interconnected aspects of the same, uh, what would you say? Like civilizational operating system. And so they, they, there's reasons why we can't agree on this. And it's so hard to make sense of. Yeah, it's such a huge issue. It's so important. I mean, if I have yeah. information that I believe in and trust that like drive, you know, if I drive down that road, I'm going to run into a brick wall, then I'm not going to go down that road. But if I don't yeah. trust that, then it's, I mean, another example for me is like, I remember when like Wi-Fi was becoming more commonly used. And I was reading um, the stuff about how there were these studies in Germany that showed it led to brain cancer and it was like terrible for your health. And is really bad for children and totally. I don't know what the truth is. Like this is like an example of a subject that I don't know what the truth is, but like if Wi-Fi is bad for us, we're 
hurting ourselves massively. It doesn't seem like it is. Yeah. And then the, now they're rolling out the 5G networks and it's kind of the same spiel of like some people are really freaked out. A lot of people are like, it's not, it's going to be fine. And like, how do you, I mean, it's just, yeah. How do we know what's true or not true? It's, it's. Yeah. It's like a super epic problem, right? Like, I mean, just as we're perhaps facing the collapse of like biosystems on planetary and bioregional level, I, I think we're also facing the collapse of our kind of collective sense-making right now. Yeah. Yeah. Really don't know how to orient to, or make sense out of like what is true. And if we don't know how to, what's true, we also don't know what's meaningful. And if we don't know what's meaningful, then how do we do anything at all that makes sense to us? How do we live a life? It just doesn't really happen, right? And that's, I think, mm. at the root of a lot of what, or not at the root, but it's one piece of what you were talking <laughs> about at the beginning with like, yeah, we have tons of food to eat, but everybody's depressed and suicide is rising. Right. Like, what, what's going on there, right? Yeah, it's lack of meaning, lack of purpose. Lack yeah, of or meaning crisis. Meaning yeah. crisis. And there's a collapse of those kinds of ideological superstructures and kind of coherence-making social systems that used to provide meaningfulness. And that maybe it's right that they're collapsing, but they are collapsing. And if we don't replace them with something, then we're getting what we get. You know? Yeah. It feels like we're really good at deconstructing everything now. And all the yeah. all of our leaders, we're really good at tearing <laughs> totally. our leaders down. But then what are we replacing them with? And if we don't have an ideal to work towards, if we don't have common beliefs and knowledge, how do you build a community? How do you yeah. even think? How do you even like, you know, think coherent thoughts if you don't know some of the basic things you're trying to think about? Yeah. It's too much. It's too much responsibility for any one person. Like I think we used to be born, I mean, this is still happening to a large degree, but we're born into a culture and we learn, there's all this cultural learning, cultural evolution. And you can just rely on that because it worked for your parents. And if you start to question everything, it's hard to operate. Yeah. And it's, and, and it's, it's, it must be said that it's, it, it, we ought to question it, right? Like uh, it, kids today in high schools are right to be dubious about their teachers and the like the education system they're, mm. they're embedded in like that's a sign of their own kind of like clarity of mind and heart right? yeah. like they ought to be but then like that's not a position on which to build a life that's a position on which to like protect yourself against forces that might want to turn you into something that you ought not be turned into and it's not inappropriate to become mm. but like yeah how do we how do we reconstruct uh you know, given that we've deconstructed so much of what <laughs> probably needed to be deconstructed, but like, as you say, like perhaps deconstruction brings us to Trump or something like that. And then we're like, uh, oh, uh, <laughs> where yeah. do we go now? You know? <laughs> something else needs to be born. Yeah. Deconstruct in a constructive way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And de- well, so one of the topics that I have explored on my podcast is this idea of metamodernism, which, uh, is if you're familiar with the kind of like modernism, postmodernism sort of mm. frame, this is positioned as the kind of movement after postmodern deconstruction. And so if you kind of think, mm. um, okay, there's this process of revealing all of the sort of uh, systemic problematic aspects of modernity, and we reveal them and then we kind of deconstruct them as we ought to, then there's this subsequent move where we then reconstruct, we rebuild, we find a new sort mm. of narrative, a new way of being that can help us move forward together as human beings. And part of what constellates that narrative for me is this possibility of collapse, right? It has a, it has a kind of narrative impact in a, as a kind of forcing function for us to really think clearly about what is the kind of world that we want to birth together because we can't 
just defer this question. We can't just deconstruct. Like deconstruction is, is not going to get us there. Right. It will not bring us across the finish line or it will bring us across a kind of finish line, but not one I think that we really want to, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's not the one we want. <laughs> oh, I like that. It's like, it kind of feels like we're being forced to confront our own powers of co-creation. That's a word I like, co-creation, because we're creating things together and things don't have to be the way that they were in the past, but, but we got to do something. And yeah. Yeah. just facing these possibilities and, and moving forward. Yeah, yeah. I was I was talking with somebody I've uh, had on my podcast a couple of times, this, this um, person, Zach Stein, I met with him yesterday. And he, mm. there was a way in which he suggested that this time period kind of began with the advent of the nuclear bomb because it was the first time in which we had the power to destroy ourselves, right? And so that was an invitation into a kind of collective self-consciousness about yeah. our activity and our actions. It forces us of, to. Yeah, well, it kind of does, but then we just sort of repressed it to a certain degree. Mm. Uh, it, it, that was his assessment, you know, for as long as we could until now it's actually like popping up in other factors in our world, like climate or like AI risk or exponential tech or, or suicide, like mass, you know, all the kind of meme mm. crisis that we're having right now. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's a really cool way to understand it as like, yeah, reckoning with our capacity for co-creation or our collective self-consciousness and really the transition into adulthood from adolescence as mm. a collective uh, of humanity. Yeah. Like a maturing process. Yeah. yeah, Totally. Yeah. It's interesting to think about. Well, so do you personally... Are you personally believing and thinking that we are going to face a kind of society collapse in the next 10, 20 years? Or are you? Um, well, so like when it comes down to level of like, I'm not certain, of course, but I think, and certainty in general is not something that we can have really about anything. I mean, that's one of the ways we need to kind of calibrate our sense making is to um, relieve ourselves of the quest for certainty and instead endeavor towards like, what's probable and what's plausible, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very plausible and reasonable uh, to see that this is a very real possibility in the next, say, 10 years, 15 years. But what mm -hmm. collapse actually looks like, like that is, there's a lot of ways that could shake out. You know, it'll be like all things, it would likely be worse for those who are already most disenfranchised by the world system, like us in first world America would probably fare much better than a lot of other people. Like a, a lot of people, when you say the word collapse, think um, of a sudden just like ending, right? Where everything just immediately turns to shit zombie apocalypse style and like, right. you know, all bets are off kind of <laughs> Mad Max world unfolds. But it's, it's not like that. Like uh, many of the people that I've talked to suggest that like life in say Vermont would look a lot more perhaps like life does in Brazil, right? Where certain social uh, mm, things like garbage doesn't get picked up. Maybe there's like more authoritarianism in the government. Maybe there's mm. like malicious forming. Maybe there's blackouts a lot. Maybe sometimes food prices just spike. And then, mm. you know, what do you do? You know, and so just th there's that, that, that kind of world might be what's coming. But again, there's just, we don't know. Right. It's interesting. I mean, yeah, one, I, certainly, I live my life like it's a very real possibility and probability. Yeah. Interesting. So, I mean, one thing you, cause I listened to a podcast you did recently on Buddhist geeks and you said something about like um, the dream of our society wasn't possible for you. Like you were talking about why you went back to living at the monastery Academy and 
I just wanted to ask you about that. Like what, like you're choosing this kind of alternative lifestyle that feels more, imagine it feels more in integrity and alignment for you. Yeah. But what, what was it about trying to live in the world and have like a more normal job and that didn't feel like that to you? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, um, it was, it was largely because of the inquiry I did in my podcast where I became through conversations with various people, uh, persuaded to this perspective that like the, that we are on the precipice of a phase shift in our civilizational operating system. Hmm. And that, uh, you know, I didn't want to pretend to believe that I could be successful according to that old model. Hmm. Right. And instead I wanted to give my life in contribution to whatever <clears throat> might come next. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like partly an act of service living in a place like that and doing the work you're doing there because yeah, it's absolutely. a place where people can come and rejuvenate and heal and learn new kind yeah. of contemplative technologies or however you want to think about it. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And to some yeah. degree, like learn about this kind of stuff, right? Like kind of get a sense of like, where are we in history? Like what is the planetary situation right now? Because that's mm. the, the sort of um, perspective of this organization is that we are in a transition. We are on the precipice of a shift. And yeah. it's up to us to a certain degree, what comes next in this, like, so Zach Stein puts, it, it's a time between worlds. Like hmm. how, which world are we going to build together? It depends hmm. on us. And we're not going to get there by following the narratives that our culture has so far produced. It's going to be something else. Yeah. That's interesting. I, th I think so, one yeah. of the biggest, um, I think one of the biggest things that we need to grapple with is, is another thing I want to ask you about is capitalism. But like one of the biggest things that we need to grapple with as a society is if we're, whether we like it or not, we organize ourselves in hierarchies. And at the top of our hierarchy is always money. And that's the thing that is driving everyone and everyone's always going for. And it symbolizes and means so much to us, even on subconscious, unconscious levels that we can't really, it's the water we're swimming in here. Mm -hmm. And there were societies and cultures in the past that were organized around different principles and that were not completely captivated by money. And um, I've tried to live my life in a way where that's not been my driving motivation per se. Like I've tried to, like I'm working as a therapist, as a meditation teacher. I'm trying to do things that I feel like are really healing and helping people. And I, you know, I still need to make money and I'm, I'm doing that as best I can. But I've tried to not let that be like my number one priority yeah. as much as I can, which has been a kind of privilege of mine to some degree. But um, I don't know. I just wanted to hear your thoughts and like speak to that a little bit because I just see that it's like, like the only, like for example, with, with climate change and the environment, the only things I've seen that make sense in our current paradigm are things that tie our economic well-being to a healthier planet. Like if we can tie environmental well-being to our economy, things like a, a tax on carbon, for example, like ideas like that, green capitalism, like that kind of makes sense. To get beyond that, we'd have to really like have a really radical shift in our, in our society because our, our society, like we could say that we are kind of a that we're not a religious society or whatever. But the, the fact is that like our spiritual religious parts of our being are being occupied by this pursuit of wealth. Mm -hmm. That's like, that's kind of how I see it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth to that, but like the human being is a helplessly metaphysical and religious being. Right. And right. So we can't really choose to opt out of that. 
Yeah, you can't just choose to opt out of meaning making, right? And so right. in the world in which uh, a lot of that which used to give more rich meaning has been deconstructed, we turn to what's available and that's like money and status and material. Image and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, companies make billions of dollars amplifying that. Um, and so, as you say, it's the water we swim in. Um, I think what's alive <clears throat> for me in that is that like even in the best and most well-designed or even with the best of intentions, we are, it's almost impossible to escape the dynamics of capitalism. And like, I think of uh, like spiritual teachers, right? So spirit, I've worked in the spiritual industry for like 10 years. Um, Hmm. And you know, it's everything from taking like wisdom, like ancient wisdom, and then what we optimize it for clicks or for like, how do you write your sales page? Hmm. Some degree you are sharing wisdom in order to get more attention and customers. And just that, like just that is like a kind of like indication of, the of the depth of perversion that our system is currently enacting, I think, across all the different systems and aspects and ways that we participate in the world. And so it's like you can't just fiddle with it. You, you know, there's something that really needs to shift fundamentally in mm. my estimation. So you have you have a really more radical critique because I mean I've talked with some people who feel at peace about a lot of this. Like they see capitalism as the natural order and that we're, you know, it's the best of possible systems that we found that distribute things in a market. And like the, like Steven Pinker, for example, can point to all these statistics of how compared to communism, for example, we're doing way better. And so, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the choice is not between capitalism and communism, right? This is like this kind of polarized categorical thinking is one of the ways in which we're, we're so is, is one of the messes we're in, right? This kind of thinking mm-hmm. that, to a certain degree is again, like formulated by the very system of the, the, the civilizational operating system we're in, right? Like you, you, you create people who think in these ways participate in the ongoing categorization and extraction of the world in order to turn it a profit, right? It's right. a way of thinking that is incentivized within our system. And so then you turn around, you're like, well, we only have capitalism and communism. Communism sucks. This is like <laughs> bad, but chill or something like, what are we going to do? But it's like, those aren't the only options. We can create something new. Communism was new and it fucking, it sucked. It didn't work, but like we can create something new. And part of the way that we create something new that works is by really understanding the problem that we're in, right? Because that should inform the solution. And so it's not mm. simple even to say that like, oh, capitalism is the issue. Cause I wouldn't even typically, like I wouldn't say capitalism is the issue. I'd say something like rivalrous game dynamics are the issue, right? Like mm. things that pit us against each other or multipolar traps are the issue. Things that make it impossible for us to cooperate across national boundaries. These are like pieces of the system, mm. right? And, the, the, and, and, and they are also then therefore pieces of the solution. Like what would it mean to create a world in which those things weren't characterizing everything that we do? Right. And, and I think that's more the kind of space that I'm interested in is like, yeah, like what is opening up now as I think that more and more of us see that the business as usual cannot continue. Like how do we kind of like be in this inquiry together? Like what world could we create that is actually sustainable deeply and won't self-terminate, won't collapse? Mm, nice. Yeah. The word sustainable is so huge. That's, that's a good goal. That's a good, cause it's like, what are, 
it's one thing to critique or deconstruct like, like we talked about, but like, what are we trying to move towards or what are we trying to create? Um, I think things like sustainability, cooperation. I mean, one thing that comes up for me is I think about like other societies and cultures and they've all been kind of clobbered, right? By whatever you want to call it, the, the order that we have now, whatever words you want to use, capitalism. And so whatever happens next needs to be something that can compete and hold its own. Because if you create a society where everyone's kind of peaceful and happy, but then the neighbors come over and just invade and slaughter everyone, like that's not going to work either. Like that's what happened in Tibet. That's what happened with so many indigenous people. Yeah. So there has to be, yeah. 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 That's, it's, it's, uh, that's a really tricky problem. And I probably can't do a good job of speaking to it, but there are folks, most of what I'm, what I'm saying in this conversation, right. is like, perspectives that I've accumulated from the conversations I've had on my podcast. And this is something that has come up and there's, there's, yeah, that, that basically the way that I've heard it expressed is like, um, you know, there are dominator win lose operating systems, human operating systems that will always outcompete win win kind of chill operating system. It's like they're, they're just going and they fucking take a stick to everybody and, you know, sub, you know, oppress them. And so how do we design something that takes that into account? Is that even possible? It's really tough. Yeah. 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 And, um, I guess, well, I, no, I'm not, it's not clear to me what, what to say to that. Yeah. Have any sense really. I just wanted to raise that thought because that comes up for me when I start thinking a lot about all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, a, yeah. I just want to go back to your talking about like a spiritual teacher in today's day and age sharing wisdom online that is ancient that he got from his teacher, his teacher's teacher. And then, but like part of the motivation is like, how can I get more clicks or how can I get more people mm-hmm. to me? And I mean, that's not always, that's not necessarily bad in of itself. But like, what is your I'm trying to get like more at your critique of the whole thing? Like we're in this, the water we swim in, like I said, we're in this world of online media, social media, capitalism, everyone's competing for our attention. Like, it's just, I don't know. I just feel, it just feels like we're just trapped in all these systems that we don't have control over. Yeah. So, I mean, what, one way to understand like the, the holistic critique, right. Is like, um, to what degree, and this is a question I ask myself, to what degree am I participating in a system, which is debasing biosphere on which I live? Hmm. Right. Yeah. And that, seems pretty clear that largely if you're participating in our economy, you're, you're, you're doing that. And then similarly, you might ask like in the way that I produce or consume, but more produce information or share information uh, to what degree am I participating in a way that is debasing the quality of the information ecology? <clears throat> right. And if I'm mm. optimizing, that's for, a good question. Yeah. If I'm optimizing for attention rather than signal or truth or, honesty or whatever it is, hmm. then I got to look at that. Yeah. That's, I like that. Can you, can you repeat that again? Yeah. To what degree am I basically participating in the info space in such a way that degrades the quality of the information ecology? Yeah. So we're all co-creating this massive information web, the internet, all the information we're sharing. And there's so much noise out there. Like you're speaking to you, there's so much shit, there's so much crap and to what degree am I like, am I, why am I sharing this? Is this helpful or not? Or some, yeah, I like that. I mean, what, one thing that's really, that I've really been thinking about a lot as I'm becoming more involved with, with teaching mindfulness is like really challenging people to touch in with fundamental awareness, touch in with a sense of peace and well being, and then to make new choices from that space. 
Mm. to not just take this so-called technology, mindfulness, meditation, whatever, and continue on with business as usual, but to actually, Mm. you know, actually like make shifts in their life. And I'm trying to do that too. And like, for me, one example is like eating meat. Like I really have thought a lot about this and I'm really making changes in the way that I approach that. And, and it's, it's like a choice I have to keep making. And there's so many things like that. And there's so many, um, it's like our society is built around addiction, basically. Like there's so many easy, quick fixes being constantly offered. And so it's like this path of like, long-term well-being versus the short-term gain and having to make that choice over and over in so many ways. And then that's true in like Facebook too. Like I could put up this thing and like maybe get more attention, but like what you're speaking to is something deeper. Like what's the motivation there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, what's, yeah. and what is it doing to our collective sense-making? Right. Yeah. 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 I think I, part, of, part of what's also, I think is, is up for me is the degree to which, we emphasize personal decisions or lifestyle choices in light of this situation we find ourselves in. Like what, what I think is, is what, what part of what I'm, I think I'm, I'm trying to say is that, uh, we are embedded in a system that is like fly on an airplane. Like don't, don't reduce what is going on to whether or not, you can fly in an airplane <laughs> much larger forces at play. It doesn't really matter if you eat meat, there's a way in which it really deeply matters, but it doesn't really matter. You mean it doesn't, doesn't matter on an individual level or it's not going to make a difference. Like the mm. world is going in a certain direction because of systemic dynamics and historical trajectories. It is heading somewhere and it is not going to change because you don't eat meat. You might feel right. better about yourself and your own participation. Right. But like under right that a bigger game is afoot. There are larger things happening. I think a lot of us, I, I, I've, seen a, I've seen it be the case that people kind of like ignore these systemic issues and trying to understand all of those big and kind of sometimes intimidating pieces and just sort of like sublimate that into, oh, I don't eat meat and I don't fly and I, I drive a little less. I take a bike. So I'm doing my part. It's like, well, yeah, that's cool. It's good. I mean, that is helping. Those kinds of choices do matter. But I, I hear what you're saying. It's not changing the larger systems that are, it's not changing the Pentagon, which is the largest consumer of oil. It's not getting Trump out of the White House. It's not, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, you're right. They do, they do really, really matter. They do really matter. I think they matter in the sense of, um, yeah, I mean, personal integrity alignment, like just that, yeah. just that we're taking a moment to consider the impacts of our actions. And it, it's gotta, there's got to be an individual level there that's got to come into play. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I guess what, what I, what I say, what I mean is um, our culture in general, and this is kind of like the critique, I think of mindfulness too, has a tendency to reduce these things to the level of the individual and make right, it all okay. about the individual. Right. And I think there are reasons why that is kind of set up that way and incentivized to happen, <laughs> having to do with consumer culture and all kinds of things. But we want to reduce that reduction. We want to understand that, yes, individual behavior is important and significant, but there's like a larger thing happening too. And that is actually like very real and very significant. Yeah. Yeah. I agree completely. Yeah. It's hard to, yeah, the, we're so individualized and atomized and mm-hmm. um, disconnected. I guess what I'm trying to speak to is, um, you know, like if you're, 
I don't know, if you have a nine to five and you're commuting an hour there, an hour back, and you never get out into nature and you're feeling depressed and taking antidepressants helps. It's like, you're just managing these surface symptoms. And like, maybe there's like lifestyle things that are actually disconnecting you from these deeper sources of well-being that we need to, you know, that changing, but it's hard. It's hard to make these changes. Oh, it's um, very hard. Yeah. Yeah. So we just, I don't know. Well, <laughs> yeah. what are your, so you're talking, we're talking about my, it's kind of this phrase, Mick mindfulness of like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. mindfulness has definitely been a theme of this podcast. I've had some wonderful teachers on here and, and thoughts and how do you like, yeah, any thoughts you want to share about the popularization of mindfulness? Cause I think it's, it's good overall and it, it can be really helpful. And then there's some really powerful critiques like I've read online, um, you know, and I heard some on your podcast a little bit. And I've heard, I've heard really strongly worded critiques from people that are in a very traditional kind of camp. Right. And they're like, oh, this mindfulness totally. isn't even the real Buddhism, the Buddha Dharma. They're just like taking this little piece and trying to make themselves feel okay. Yeah. Um, and then I've heard more critiques like people like criticizing the, these larger systems like we we're talking about, like with capitalism and climate change. And so there's some different kind of critiques out there. And um, I mean, like one thing that I see that feels clear is like you shouldn't be separating cultivating greater awareness and mindfulness and meditative presence from the choices you make and the actions you take in the world. Like if you, if you, if you separate that out, that is not, right. That's not helpful. That's not something I want to teach. Yeah. Yeah. It's a false dichotomy. Yeah. Like it's both, it's both, it's both, it's both. Yeah. Both has to be both. And I think partly I understand their critiques when I'm being generous as being a kind of invitation to, evolve the pedagogy of mindfulness to include more such that it wouldn't block including both, Mm, right? There might be a way that you could teach mindfulness that would kind of block the other, right? Like it's just about individual well-being and such. And yeah. um, So uh, yeah, I think that for, for me, at least that's a lot of where the, the critique is coming from. Like I did a podcast, the one you listened to where I was kind of like voicing some of these critiques like, oh, maybe mindfulness is kind of anesthetizing us, making us better cogs in a machine. Right. right? You can imagine like, uh, I think, you know, like I said earlier, like it's appropriate for a child to be a little bit like um, uneasy about mm. their public schooling. Right. And if I'm going in and teaching them mindfulness so they can de-stress and be at ease with that, mm. that might be a little messed up. Right. right. There's a way that you could understand that to be a little messed up. Um, I don't think that's unfair. Like, uh, and so for me, when I, when I'm giving the critiques, it's more like an invitation to just become more nuanced about how we're teaching this stuff, like how we understand its role in the larger system and hopefully inviting some kind of awareness. You have like systems and things like that, but like mindfulness is not going to be the thing. Mindfulness is great, Hmm. but it's not like, it's not everything. It's not a panacea. Right. right? That's important. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, I think people are putting a lot of like, um, putting a lot more, uh, weight on it and what it can accomplish than it is warranted. You know, I think one other piece is that mindfulness is important to remember is like just one piece of an ecology of practices that we call Buddhism, which it's only when they're together and functioning Mm. like the eightfold path becomes a technology of really radical human transformation. Mm. Mindfulness on its own is just one piece of that eight. Right. And so it's like, you know, there's a, there's, there's a bigger picture of human transformation that I think we also need to sort of bring into view 
with these sorts of conversations. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, I guess what's coming for to my mind right now talking about all this is it's a, it's tricky with language and with talking about something like mindfulness because there's there's real levels and layers to it that someone who has been practicing and thinking about it and studying it for some number of years is going to be different from someone who's just hearing about it. So it's hard to communicate across these these things. And I think part of what's happening is like the spiritual traditions I've been really inspired to follow to kind of teach and lead to non-dual awareness. Hmm. And so mindfulness is kind of this thread that might start off, you know, you're very separate, you're very dualistic and you follow it and you're cultivating this awareness um, that eventually expands to include everything. So it's this non-dual awareness. It's not separate from anything, but then it needs to include things like ethical action and the hmm. our relationships. And I guess there's a danger of like separating that out from the relative world, so to speak, hmm. um, that a lot of good teachers are good at, at at pushing people to not do that because you can kind of disassociate um, from mm. other aspects that are going on instead of including touching everything, like expanding it out. I don't know if that makes sense, but like the word mindfulness to me can mean so many different things. And when it, in my own practice, when it comes to just refer to this pure awareness, like that's something that includes everything. So in right. that sense, like mindfulness is everything, but in the sense we're talking about it, it's not everything. It's one piece of the, this big puzzle that we're all part of. Yeah, and I think it's increasingly being understood as a kind of like almost like um, social emotional learning as just like a foundational right. piece of the general human educational curriculum. Yeah, right. But that 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 isn't then pointing to this like trajectory towards the Godhead or anything like that. It's <laughs> like part of how to make sure your human kind of being is functioning well and you're able to be discerning and have emotional Reg- regulated. regulation. Yeah. psychological flexibility and like right. those beautiful things. And we should encourage the uh, rapid spread of those qualities as soon as, as fast as we can across the planet. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. But we should also, yeah, be clear though about the distinction, like you're saying, like it's not this other thing. And so yeah. the people who are, love this other thing shouldn't be so territorial towards the, what's happening over here is kind of also my sense. Like, yeah, it can all be included. Yeah. We could, it's like, they're doing kind of a different thing over here. Like you can chill out. Like it's actually okay. It's good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and also the critiques are good because we're in a dialectic and this stuff is very new. Like we're in the birth canal of these practices. Yeah. It's worth criticizing in a constructive way, I think. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Cool. Well, awesome. Um, let me see what other questions I have for you. <laughs> I guess anything else you want to share about your, your life over there? What's your day-to-day life like? Well, I have you. Like what is like the yeah, structure, some of the structure of the organization, I guess. I'm just curious to hear a little bit. Structure of like the, of the like the monastery, or? like, yeah, just the academy. Yeah, it's interesting. So we have a, it's kind of like a fused together monastery and nonprofit. So we have roles, some of which are more having to do with like, um, you know, the the kind of training center and others of which are having to do more with like the nonprofit, like fundraising or marketing or whatever. Um, And it's a pretty, it's pretty hierarchical, right? So we have an executive director slash teacher and, Mm. um, but like, it's pretty like flexible, fluid within that. You can kind of do it, do what you want to achieve your role. But, um, so there's some autonomy. Oh yeah, totally. And, and the longer you've been here, the more autonomy you get. Like I've got, I've got a pretty significant amount of autonomy at this point here. <laughs> um, whereas people who are just joining, you know, don't have very much, uh, hmm. which is part of the training, right? It's like, <laughs> you know, uh, it's very much part of the training. 
Uh, well, that that point is is worth like highlighting because you have an organization, you have a community, and then there's a hierarchy you're talking about. And hopefully it's a healthy, natural one. And so many kind of alternative communities are trying to have no hierarchy or just have this equality. And it doesn't, it doesn't work in yeah. terms of getting things done in the world, in terms of even in terms of like a healthy, commun- happy community. It just starts to, there's so many problems that develop when there's not leadership and there's not responsibility and there's not clear roles given. And I've been a part of things like that. And it's just, it's been a real difficult, painful learning to see that play out over and over again. I mean, it's what Ken Wilber calls the, the mean green meme yeah yeah like this equality and we're all equal and we'll just each do what we want and just i don't know it's just so frustrating because nothing gets done there's a lot of conversation and a lot of kind of victim kind of mentality and yeah i don't know i mean i'm happy to hear i mean it seems like this place is not in that trapped too much so the 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 green mean yeah no no very much so we're not um uh yeah i mean i actually think that kind of on a developmental level, that's probably one of the most relevant and significant things this training is offering is that, you know, like we talked about so much of our society has been kind of deconstructed. Like people don't take it seriously. Right. Like even right. Like students are just like, uh, like academia is a farce, like society is just, you know, it's whatever, all of it is whatever. And it's all, it's all just a, so. oppressive. <laughs> yeah. It's all just oppressive. Um, and so perhaps, but, but um, it seems like from a kind of human development perspective, we need to participate in systems and like fully in order to actually develop, like in order to complete certain developmental journeys. Mm. We can't from the very beginning be like uh, de- detached and uh, have postmodern irony and sort of a deconstructive vibe. Like we actually don't complete certain developmental pathways when we do that. And so one of the things that certainly was true for me at the monastery is that it offered a place where I could actually like trust in a system enough to be transformed by it and then like see its uh, limitations, but not throw the baby out with the bathwater and really nice. feel like all right with that. And, and yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I like hearing about that. Um, yeah. I think that was a real issue at Naropa, the university I went to this kind of hmm dynamic and lack of leadership like lack of because the leader was always being torn down you know yeah yeah and it's yeah that's interesting like it would torn down how do you how do you mean i mean it could be it could be kind of subtle at times but just like whoever was kind of in a leadership role was then open up to like being yeah just i don't know accused of of an oppressive system or just this object to rebel against instead of something to like, let's actually do something together. Yeah. I don't know if that, does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I mean, then we throw in like the, you know, if they're a man, if they're a white male, if they're heterosexual, like all these like labels became, can become so divisive rather than, I think some of those critiques are valid, but like if that, if you're, if you're reducing everyone to these labels and these identities, that just becomes so destructive. It's not a, it's not a way to have a healthy, happy community in my experience at all. In fact, yeah. the opposite. Like we just we're dividing ourselves out more. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 And so I, that's one of the reasons I really appreciate this place is that it's like a firm stand for like hierarchy and formalism and kind of like yeah, power. Really, like skillful use of power. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That's important. Yeah. Of like empower ourselves and use it in a good way rather than try to deny it or repress it or pretend like we don't have it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's like the, 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 um, 
what the founder Soryu for all kind of how he typically talks about this training is that we're training in the three capacities of wisdom, love, and power. And power is the one that often gets left out in kind of spiritual places, right? And yeah. So you often see wisdom and love without power, which is like, as you say, kind of ineffective and hmm, what's the word? Like kind of neutered. Yeah. <laughs> and then you often, often see power without wisdom or love. That's kind of like what's running our world to a certain right. degree. But bringing them all together is kind I of... I love that. I haven't heard that before. Wisdom, yeah. love, or compassion and power? Yeah, wisdom, love, and power. Wisdom, love, and power. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, people see that power being misused is destroying our world. And so then there's a natural thing of like being, a, like not wanting that, right? But then you're talking about something like using it intelligently and yeah, with wisdom. That makes so much sense to me. Yeah. Cool. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Do you have any other um, last thoughts or questions? Um, I mean, connected to me with this whole discussion of power. I mean, we're talking about mindfulness and meditation. You're there at a monastery. There's been so many scandals with teachers, especially in the Tibetan Buddhist world that I'm a part of. Yeah. And so that's kind of, that's part of the dynamic that I'm trying to talk about right now is like mm, people cool. who are in positions of power and then whether it's totally fair or not, they're then seen as these tyrants and oppressors. And I think some of these, you know, it's, I think we have to look at each case individually, but what tends to happen is it all gets lumped together into one thing and someone becomes a symbol oh, for this thing and then they get torn down and it's really hard to navigate that. But I don't know if you've had that kind of dynamic play out at all there or, I mean, hopefully not, but. No, we we haven't really had that come here yet. Um, but <laughs> it's certainly something that I'm paying close attention to in the kind of Buddhist world. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting to see it happen. Like I was in Boulder when it happened for Shambhala. Oh, really? We're like, oh yeah, yeah. I remember like talking to people and kind of just because I, I was not a part of that community, but I would talk, go, like meet up with people at the ca coffee shop or like go to Marpa House and kind of like, oh yeah, like, yo, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> how are you? Just because I was curious to see how the community was metabolizing it. Yeah, it's and still going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, and it will be for a long time, I imagine. And yeah, for like Chuladasa. If you know, was a teacher that is really significant in kind of our ecosystem, and he just got, yeah, you know, same thing, same sort of thing happened with him. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, it's really tough. And as you say, like each 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 situation is so unique, so unique. That's what I feel like gets lost in the meta in the narrative of you know, but the me too movement, but it's been, there's a lot of bit positive with it and it's good. If there's a wrong being none of it's corrected, that's a good thing. I guess what I'm concerned about is, I don't know, like the Shambhala situation, the Sakyong has been really criticized, I think for good reason. And then there's these nuances in it. Like most of the allegations apparently took place 15 or more years ago. And so is there, does that get to be part of the consideration? Does that get to be part of the process? And if someone did something 15 years ago, can they change and, and mature and grow and apologize for it? And can there be a, a space for that? Or where do we draw these lines? I mean, there's just, it's a huge discussion, but um, I don't know. I'm just <laughs> raising the questions. It's extremely complex. I mean, or complicated. One of the ways that I look at it um, is just as a kind of like collective and cultural reckoning, right? Like this is like almost like a, purging process yeah like yeah actually 
needs to happen. It's going to be a little irrational and like, that's fine. Like we'll, we'll land somewhere else and there's going to be a collateral damage, but like it needs to happen. It needs to happen. Yeah. Maybe the end result will be positive. I hope so. I mean, I think part of what will hopefully make it positive is conversations like where you really dive into these sorts of nuances and like, help yeah, you know, <laughs> <maybe> <laughs> nuance it into the future or something like that. But I don't want to stand in the way of it, you know, because it's important. It feels important. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what I want to say about it right now, except that I feel that the future of Vajrayana or Tibetan Buddhism in this country is irrevocably changed. It's we're never going to be able to go back and, such a core key part of the whole tradition is seeing the guru as a Buddha. And that's just going to be, I don't know how it's going to play out. I don't know what the answer is, but there's a lot of people who were practicing in those traditions who feel, um, you know, cynical or like the wool's been pulled out from their eyes or they're, you know, mm. this person they revered wasn't the person that they thought it was. And mm. what does that mean for your own practice or for these teachings or the, you know, if you put years of your life into it, like, what do you do with that? And it's, yeah. 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 I mean, the, the, I think that the, the, the thing that I have seen recently, which makes me most hopeful is what happened with, I think it was, um, was it against the stream? Noah Levine's. Oh yeah. I don't know if you're tracking this, but um, I don't know too much about that one. So he, he got enmeshed in a scandal of some kind and had to step down as teacher and leader of this community in California they had like mm. a building and a pretty rich community apparently. And um, they were going to just disband the community, but a group of the members of the community basically stood up and were like, no, we're going to keep this going on our own. And they formed, nice. I think it's like the San Francisco Dharma collective. And now it's like a non, like non hierarchical or kind of distributed decentralized training space for mm. Dharma. And they invite in teachers and it's apparently really lovely and like empowering to everybody that's there and like really, awesome place. So they kind of like oh, cool. that crisis and transformed it apparently into a really cool like phase shift for their whole community. Yeah. See, I like, I like that example. I'm going to, I'm going to look that up because I just, I don't like the idea of like, if there is a rich community that's providing value, like just having the whole community be destroyed based on the actions of the leader doesn't, that's could be counterproductive. Like why would we want to do that? We need to be creating more community and not less. We need to be coming together in times of difficulty rather than disbanding and giving up on everything. Yeah, I would recommend reaching out. I mean, they, they, I think they would love to share their story with you, I think. It's okay, that'd be really cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think decentralized, less emphasis on one particular guru or leader is going to be a big part of the future of, of Dharma in this country. So. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, cool. It's been great talking to you. appreciate it. It's felt like a very serious, mature conversation. <laughs> Oh really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh geez, I didn't even. I, I guess this is, this is the water I swim in. I don't know. Yeah, you're used to. <laughs> like, I became really self-conscious when he said that. That's funny. <laughs> oh, okay. But I think well, it's good. I think it's good stuff to to think about and and be with. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. I, I I forget. It's interesting to talk to you. I mean, I don't do that many podcast interviews, but uh, and when I do, it's usually I think more in spaces where the these topics are kind of talked about and I, I forget how weird of a kind of like rabbit hole bubble that I'm in and that I talk about this stuff all the time, you know, it's yeah. very strange. <laughs> but I appreciate you for, for bringing me on and, and humoring, humoring me and hopefully uh, there's something valuable for folks who are listening to. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on. If you found this podcast valuable, there are many ways that you can support it. 
You can blog about it, post about it on your social media accounts and share it with friends. You can visit our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash a state of mind. And you can leave us a review in your favorite podcast listening app. For episode notes and more information and links, please visit estateofmindplay.com. And to learn more about my work as a therapist, meditation teacher, and coach, visit julianocean.us. Thanks so much, and I will see you here next time.